Hey, GCC family, hope you guys are doing well today. Thank you so much for joining us here online, whether you're on YouTube or Facebook or wherever else you might be. Uh, we're thankful for you. You are a blessing to us. Uh, in fact, if we haven't had a chance to hear from you in a little while, whether or not you've been out of, or whether it's because you've been out of town or, or because of coronavirus, we just wanted to let you know that we love you, we miss you, we're praying for you, and if you need anything for, at all from us, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can reach us at gcclw.org uh, under the contacts tab. With that said, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are you. You're the king. You're amazing and we love you. Father, I pray that uh, as we engage with your word today, that you would begin and continue to transform our hearts. Lord, that we would become more and more image bearers of you and your son Jesus to the world. And Lord, ultimately that as people look at our lives, they would see you at work. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You know, as I was preparing for this sermon today, I was reminded of a man named Doss, D-A-W-S. And uh, Doss was kind of a typical guy living in the early 1900s. Uh, in high school, he was mischievous and got into all kinds of crazy stuff. He would save himself later in life that he was the type of person who knew the right things to say at church, who did the right things as a, as a Christian, but he had not gone all in for Jesus. At age 20, though, he did go all in for Jesus, and his life was transformed. And, and this was a big deal because Doss was not the type of guy who would kind of do things half-heartedly. Either he was all in or not in at all. So it was a big deal when Doss decided to go all in for Jesus. As he did, his life was set ablaze by God, and he began to share the message of Jesus with everyone around him. And he began to watch as people were encountering and, and, and experiencing the living God, and their lives were being changed. And as he did this, he realized that it's important to, to more than just bring people into a relationship, or to, to more than just bring people into a, to, to a salvation with God, but to... Uh, we also need to disciple them, to, to train them in the ways that uh, they should follow Jesus, kind of fulfilling that, that part of the Great Commission where Jesus says, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. Doss realized the, the importance of this and could be hear, heard saying, don't bring spiritual babies to birth and, and leave them to die for lack of nourishment. In 1933, Doss moved to San Diego and he led a ministry to sailors on Navy ships. While ministering, he met a man named Les, and uh, Doss and Les spent tons of time together. Uh, they were they they were good pals, and uh, Dawson or Doss was uh, spent, uh, pouring his life into Les and uh, teaching him how to obey Jesus and his commands. And one day, Les came to Doss and said, "Hey, Doss, do you mind if this other guy joins us as we study God's word together?" And Doss said, a surprising, absolutely not. He cannot come. And Les was taken back by this answer. But, but Doss explained, you teach him now. If your friend is going to be discipled, it, it will have to be you who does it. Les protested this. He, he felt like this was, he was ill-equipped to do this work. But Doss responded, it doesn't matter if you feel ill-equipped. If I... 
If you can't teach him what I've taught you, I've failed. Les did go on to disciple that friend, and, and that friend discipled other friends. Meanwhile, Doss and Les discipled others as well, and eventually a whole movement had started. Tons of servicemen were, were coming into this saving relationship with Jesus and being trained in how to follow him. By 1934, a group, the group had grown so large that the organization The Navigators, a Bible club for servicemen, had uh, an organization that's still around today under the name NAVs or Navigators was formed. It got to such an extent that the USS West Virginia eventually had a Bible study nearly every night and it got dubbed the Floating Seminary. In 1941, the world became the parish of all of these uh, freshly trained sailors in how to share the word of God with others and how to obey Jesus as they were sent off into World War II. For the rest of his life, Dawson Trotman, Doss, was compelled by the reality that if he wanted to reach the world, that if, if we want to reach the world with the message of Jesus, we needed to do more than just convert people. We needed to train and empower them to go and preach the gospel themselves to the next person and, and, and be able to train that next person so that next person would be able to go and train others and, 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 that, and that person would be trained so that they could train the next person and so on and so forth. Dawson died at the age of 50 saving a girl who was drowning in, in the water. And in his obituary, Time Magazine described him as quote-unquote always holding someone up. Trotman's life has impacted the eternities of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, or millions of people, the eternities of these people's lives. Not because he himself preached to every single person, not because he sought the spotlight, not because he sought the stage, but literally just the opposite, because he chose to seek a position of service and empowering others and lifting them up to go and do the work that God was calling them to do. I'm astounded by Dawson's legacy. It's a legacy of a man who, who never sought the spotlight. He never sought the stage. He never sought to be this man who, who everybody knew his name or, or, or anything like that. Instead, he was this humble man who sought to serve and empower others so that more people could hear the message of Jesus. Don't you just love stories of people like that? People who earnestly sought God uh, and earnestly sought the good of others, even at the cost of their own lives. These stories are so compelling to me. They're so inspirational. They make me want to be a man who lifts others up. You know, I'm reminded of another famous man, a, a warrior, a man by the name of Desmond Doss, who did much the same thing. Not to be, to be confused with Dawson Trotman. So Desmond Doss, Desmond's story can be, uh, was made famous by the movie, uh, and I think there was a book also, but the movie Hacksaw Ridge. Desmond was devoted uh, to being a military medic, but he was what we call a conscientious objector, which means he was unwilling to carry a gun into battle. He encountered extreme difficulty as he sought to be this conscientious objector and this medic. He, he was beaten up by different, by his, uh, I guess his, his platoon, or I, I'm not sure the, the correct military uh, term. He, he was almost court-martialed. There was, there was a number of things that occurred 
But ultimately, Desmond did find himself in war, in the theater of war. And as he did, he didn't run away from the difficulty. He, he ran towards it. And he ran across dangerous battlefields, carrying wounded men to safety, and sometimes even enemy soldiers. His story is, is an example of, of literally taking on this position of a servant and, and lifting others up, not seeking to be great himself, not seeking some name for himself, but simply seeking to serve and honor God and love and honor others. Dawson and Desmond had different missions, but also they had this major thing in common. They were devoted to God and devoted to lifting others up. What epic legacies. Have you ever encountered someone like this? Someone uh, who is, isn't concerned with the spotlight, is, isn't obsessed with themselves, isn't looking at their own navel as the, you know, their own belly button as the, the most important thing in the world. It, I think we're attracted to people like this. We, we feel valuable as we engage people who, who are not focused on themselves, but focused on others. As we enter into conversations with people like these, like these or, or, or as we exit conversations with people like this, we, we often are invigorated and encouraged. We feel seen and loved. When these humble-hearted people see others, they look for ways to serve and empower them, for ways to not take away, but to give. Their objective is not to make themselves known, not to make themselves great, but to ensure that the other person is known and loved. Instead of asking the question, who's the greatest, and hoping the answer is themselves, they ask, how can I serve, lift up, and empower others, counting them as more significant than myself? As I've been thinking about this concept, I've been considering how our culture views this idea of being self-obsessed, of being, of looking inwardly, of saying, I'm the most important person I know. Back in the day, we had stories like Disney's Snow White, where the evil witch in that, or the evil queen, I can't remember if she was a witch or not, <laughs> um, said, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? This person, this character was vilified. Uh, this, this idea that she was so self-obsessed that she was willing to commit murder to be the fairest of them all what was considered horrible. But I fear that the, the, the pendulum has begun to shift and, and shift a lot. It seems like in our, in our modern day, we have stopped looking at these people, these self-obsessed people as the villains and started looking at them as our examples, our heroes, our idols. Some people, I fear, even in their personal life, have sought to understand themselves to such a degree that we do this just in our personal lives. So, for example, um, I, our, our culture is currently obsessed with all kinds of different personality tests. Things like the Enneagram and the Myers-Briggs and this and that and the other. And, and I think all of those things have their place. But surely I'm not alone in, in noticing just how far people have begun to take these things. It almost becomes this journey of self-awareness that never ends. 
And we're always trying to become more self-aware and more self-aware and taking all these tests and doing all this stuff. And our eyes seem to shift focus from God and others to our own belly button. And suddenly we become the most important person we know. The schemes of the enemy are sneaky, sneaky. <laughs> a journey that began in a good heart of understanding ourselves so that we could love others better ends with us being self-obsessed and only looking at me. All that said, we, we all face the decision every day. Who or what is the most important thing to me? As we engage the scriptures today, I challenge you to ask yourself, where do you currently fall on this spectrum of saying you're the most important or saying God and others are the most important? Where are you? are you? Are you more concerned with your name and your reputation or with caring for the least and the lowest? Where do you fall? Are you like Dawson and Desmond or are you more like the, the evil queen in Snow White? Wondering who is the fairest of them all and hoping the answer is you. So as we uh, transition to, to, to the scriptures, I, just, I, I encourage you to ask that question. Today we're going to be con continuing our series in Luke 22, uh, or our series in Luke with Luke 22. And before I read, uh, let me set the scene for you. In Luke 22, we're entering into the last like 36 to 24 hours of Jesus' life. Um, in, the, in the verses that come before what we're about to read, they find a place to, to do the Passover, this famous Passover meal. Um, they, uh, they, they prepare the meal. Jesus serves the meal. He famously talks about his, his body and his blood being uh, get broken and poured out for, 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 for the world. And uh, Jesus talks about his betrayal. And, and then all of a sudden we get to this section. It seems almost honestly out of place. Like, like it's an abrupt change of tone. We, we go from Jesus' final thoughts and actions as he's approaching the end of his life to this really petty disagreement with the disciples. But we're going to read here beginning in verse 24. So Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 24. Here's what it says. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to him, to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you the kingdom, just as my father conferred it on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. If you were to read uh, on, you, you would see just how out of place this passage seems. In, in the next few verses, we see Jesus going to Gethsemane and praying and, and the drops of blood and then getting arrested. And, and ultimately, this chapter ends with Peter denying Jesus and then Jesus being called a blasphemer for not denying to be the Son of God. All that to say, you really wonder, how are the disciples so oblivious to what is happening Jesus is talking about this meal as his last meal, and he's talking about being betrayed. 
And it's like, without missing a beat, the disciples are like, hey, bro, I think I'm more important than you. <laughs> like, it's just kind of, it's kind of strange. Jesus' reply to all of this is super interesting. Take note that he doesn't become angry or, or get harsh. Jesus always, being this gracious teacher and leader, doesn't rebuke. Instead, he's very concise, and he redirects the disciples, and he calls them to a different perspective. The first thing he does is he points at the, the Gentile, the non-Jewish kings over the people. And he, he talks about how these kings demand to be seen and revered by their people because of like the fact that they give out money and, and do projects and this and that. And they, there's this sense that they deserve to be revered. And Jesus is like, yeah, no, you're not going to be like that. Then Jesus says, instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules should be like, should be the one who serves. In this ancient culture, the youngest was this lowly role because importance was based on age. In essence, both of these phrases, Jesus is saying, if you want to lead, you have to first be willing to be to serve. If you want to be great, you have to be the lowest. And of course, Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues, and he even directs the disciples. He says, hey guys, did you notice where I was during this whole meal? I, I, I'm, who's, who's greatest? The one who, who eats at the table or the one who serves the meal? Isn't it the one who eats at the table? But yet I'm here, your leader, standing in front of you, serving you this meal. Jesus is like, you want to know how you know that the greatest is the one who serves? All you have to do is open your eyes and look at what I'm doing. Isn't that interesting? I love that Jesus didn't simply tell us how to live. He showed us how to live. And he called us to live as he did. He didn't ever ask us to do something he wasn't first willing to do. The final three verses of this passage are kind of like really interesting and somewhat confusing. Uh, it seems to me that Jesus is saying to his disciples, listen, guys, so this, this reality that those who are great need to be willing to serve is very, very true. And look, you've done that. As, we, as we've gone through the, all of these trials together, you've gone through difficulty, you've given up your families and your jobs all for me. And because of that, you're going to have a place in my coming kingdom to the extent that you're even going to be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This idea that they're going to judge the 12 tribes is kind of a really fascinating concept, but one that we're not going to be able to get to today. But one interesting tidbit is that it actually is spoken of another time in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says this of all saints, that the saints, the followers of Jesus, are going to judge the world. So quite a fascinating little thing. All that to say, today we're going to be focusing on what I believe is the main thrust of this passage. Mainly that Jesus is teaching about what it takes to lead and be great in his kingdom and how we as believers are to act. Before we go much further though, you've heard me throw around this word quite a bit already, kingdom. And I just wanna take a moment quickly to define this word uh, because it's a very important word for us as followers of Jesus. And I think that we often say it without fully understanding what it means. 
from the beginning parts of the New Testament, we see this idea of God's kingdom coming uh, all throughout the Gospels, throughout the book of Acts, and, and, and to the end, to the book of Revelation. It's this common theme that connects the entire New Testament. The kingdom of God is basically a phrase that we use to describe a twofold framework, if you will. The, the first idea in this framework is that the, the kingdom of God is the culture, it's the behaviors, it's the beliefs, it's the, it's the things we say and the way we live and, and how we engage with the world. Um, it's, it's the culture of, of those who follow Jesus and Jesus himself. And the second idea in kingdom is, is that it's the place where Jesus is the king, like any kingdom has a king. We can understand the kingdom better by by describing how it looks. And you see Jesus doing this all throughout the Gospels. The kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like this, the kingdom of God is like this. Uh, one of these phrases happens right here in Luke chapter 22. In my kingdom, if you want to be the greatest, you have to be the least. Other famous phrases are all over the New Testament. Some of those are like the Beatitudes at the, end, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, and so on and so forth. As you read the Beatitudes, you can almost read them like this. In my kingdom, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In my kingdom, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. There's this, there's this way that Jesus tends to describe the kingdom by, by pointing at other things to help us understand it. You can also gain understanding about the kingdom, like I said, by realizing that Jesus is the king. And, and, and his kingdom is where his will and his reign and his rule happen. In other words, his kingdom is kind of this backwards, unexpected, different from the world culture that's mixed with the fact that Jesus is king and in his kingdom, his will is done. Right now, Currently, in, in the age we live in, we have a taste of this kingdom. We, we see little, little bits and pieces of this kingdom, but his kingdom is coming fully when he comes again, the second coming. Then we'll fully know what Jesus' kingdom looks like. In case it isn't obvious, Jesus' kingdom looks a lot different from our modern kingdoms or our, our view of kingdoms in the world. And uh, just to illustrate that really quickly, I wanted to draw a picture. And I've done this prior, but it's been a long time. Um, in, in, in kingdoms that we currently have, oh, yeah, sorry, this is a little awkward. In the kingdoms that we currently have, it's, it's kind of like this. With the king at the top and lowly people at the bottom, right? That, that's, that's how we view kingdoms in, in, in the world today. In Jesus' kingdom, it's more like, oops, it's more like this. That those who wish to be the most important are actually the least important. Those who wish to be the most, and, and those who are the least important are actually the most important. So that's kind of what God's kingdom looks like. And it's really, really, really important to understand that it's this backwards, upside down thing where the least will be the greatest and the last will be first. Take note of who is lifted up in Jesus's kingdom model. Jesus and many of the New Testament writers make it clear that God opposes the proud but gives grace 
to the humble, that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus's kingdom just doesn't look like other kingdoms. And as followers of Jesus, we are to be living out these kingdom principles in our lives. Just as in the passage, Jesus calls his disciples who want to rule to be first servants and those who want to be great to serve and to do this based on his example. So we're supposed to be living out these kingdom concepts right now, right here in our modern day. The crazy thing is that these kingdom concepts are not just theoretical or something that will happen in the future. For example, this Luke 22 truth that we seek to serve and lift others up. And as we do, we find ourselves be, being lifted up as leaders and examples to others. It, it happens again and again. I'm reminded of a friend of mine named Caleb. Uh, he's probably one of the most humble people I've ever met in my entire life. He's a man who passionately seeks after the Lord. He's a man who passionately seeks to serve. He has the heart of Dawson Trotman to, to just in, equip and empower and, and, and send others. This guy, by his own ministry, uh, uh, just like in-person ministry, and also by equipping and empowering others, has had an impact on tens of thousands of people around the world, all for the sake of the gospel. And all the while, Caleb has been seeking to take on this position of extraordinary humility. As he's done this, God has had him put on stages in front of hundreds and thousands of people. He's, he's had him uh, on TV. He's, this guy's written a book. It's, it's crazy the impact that Caleb's life has had as he has sought to simply take on a role of service and care for others. I'm reminded of another friend, my friend Mary Amu, who uh, I've told you guys about her many, many times. But ultimately, her story is a story of going from having nothing physically and spiritually to being the voice of scripture and being able to provide for the physical needs of others out of her abundance. It's amazing to watch as God has taken this woman who was homeless with her two children after her husband left her and took everything, all of their possessions, all of their money with him. And to watch as God has transformed her life and now she's the, the voice of scripture to her people and her impact on the Hobbs Bay people will have a, 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 will make a difference for all of eternity as many Hobbs Bay people have decided to follow Jesus because of her. I could tell you story after story after story of people whose ministries have grown as a result of taking on these positions of humility. At the same time, I could also tell you stories of the opposite happening. People who didn't choose to take on lowly and humble positions to serve, who were humbled. Recently, big name pastors and leaders in massive mega churches, churches that these pastors have built from the ground up have been fired from their positions because they're so prideful because they seek to rule rather than seeking to serve. My guess is that you've seen these kinds of things happening in your own life at a, at a small level or even at a big level. The humble being exalted and the exalted being humbled. You know, as we seek to be those who serve to rule, uh, sorry, as we seek to be those who serve rather than to be pe rather than being people who rule, I think that we have some good examples. Dawson, Desmond, Caleb, Mariamu. Uh, but by far, my favorite example is Jesus himself. 
in my opinion, like I already said, one of the coolest realities is that Jesus never asks us to do something without he himself doing it first. In fact, he defines what these actions are. He says, hey, follow me. Do the things that I do. You, you can't ignore the call of scripture that says be like Christ. Not be Christ, not be God, but be do the things that he did and say the things that he said to others. Really important. The example we get from Christ is this ridiculous willingness to humble himself. He's God. He, he's in heaven. And, but he decides to be born in a barn, in a stable, to a virgin, with, with his first visitors being animals and shepherds. Uh, he lived this typical life. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He was tempted. He, he went through all of the struggles. He knew what it meant to be human. Uh, and ultimately, his death was this unjust, horribly painful death of a criminal. Every part of Jesus is this example of taking this humble position. And then look what God does. He exalts Jesus. He defined humility. Jesus defined humility. He defined service in what he did and how he lived his life. And for Jesus, Jesus's humility is not false humility. False humility is this ridiculous imposter to true humility. False humility pretends to care for others, pretends to, to be humble, but is actually focused on self. False humility speaks in a way that puts me and my struggles at the center of it all. It tries to elevate hardship to, in order to gain pity. False humility says, I'm more important. People should look at me, but, but I'm going to pretend and manipulate people into thinking that I'm actually humble. This, of course, is juxtaposed uh, completely the opposite in Jesus' true humility. Jesus made it clear that true humility is not thinking of yourself less. It's not all this false humility, pity party, low self-esteem, I need attention stuff. Instead, it's simply thinking of yourself less. Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And thinking of others more and lifting them up and making them more important. The difference between false humility and true humility is that where my is where my focus is. In false humility, my focus is on me, and in true humility, my focus is on God and others. Jesus ultimately exemplifies this best, this act of humility and service on the cross, as he sought to serve and give himself as a ransom for many. He showed us what truly becoming a servant looks like, what truly making others more important looks like to the nth degree. He really is our example. With that, I would like to return to that question that we asked all the way at the beginning of the sermon today. Where do we fall on this spectrum? Where do you fall on this spectrum? Are you the ones seeking the spotlight? Or are you the one trying to lift others up? Perhaps like me, you're somewhere in the middle, seeking to truly be humble as Jesus is, but failing and sometimes playing the false humility card in order to gain attention or pity. I challenge you to be honest and truly ask, where do you fall? Where do I fall? With that in mind, I want to invite you to consider various parts of your life where the Lord might be asking you, calling you to be more intentionally others focused. 
more intentionally humble, more intentionally seeking to serve others. Perhaps it's in your marriage. Perhaps there's a place where you've been focusing on what's fair or what's even or, 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 or having a high expectation instead of setting yourself up to, to hope for the betterment of the other person. You've, you've hoped that they would treat you better without treating them better. Is there any place in your marriage where you've sought to put yourself in front of your spouse? Perhaps it's in your professional life. Have you been seeking positions of leadership but not been willing to serve and care for others? Have you, uh, been, uh, have you, have you even stepped potentially on others in order to get to where you're going? Perhaps it's here in the church body. Have you, have you sought positions of, a, of authority or leadership or, or teaching and, and, and yet been unwilling to do the, the menial tasks, the, the service tasks, the tasks that say, hey, you're more important than me. How can I serve you, serve you better? Perhaps it's at school for, for you kids out there. Um, or home? Is there, is there something in your life at home or school where you feel like it's not fair or, or you're unwilling to do it? And you, you wish that other people would serve you, but you refuse to serve others. Jesus' example is clear. Lift others up. Serve, even when it's costly. I leave you with this question. When you get to the end of your life, whenever that might be, what do you want your legacy to be? What do you want them to write about you? Will it be anything like Dawson Trotman's obituary? He was always lifting others up? Or, it will, be, or will it be something else? I invite you to, 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 to focus in on what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to take on these positions of humility and to ask yourself, when you get to the end of your life, do you want to be this person who's remembered for trying to be this ruler? Or do you want to be someone who's remembered as always holding others up? With that, let's conclude with a word of prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for your kingdom come and your will be done. Lord, we pray that we would be more in your pattern, more in your image. Uh, Lord, that we would do the things that you taught us to do. Father, that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit to be men and women who honor you and lift up your name. God, you're good and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you have a great rest of your day, Grace. God bless.